welcome to Retrofitted. My name is Rebecca Godlove. Thanks for sticking with me during my unexpected hiatus. I have been very vocal about mental health awareness on this podcast and also in real life, so I figured it was very important to allow time to care for my mental health. In these past several weeks, I have begun to adjust to some dosage changes in my medication, and also I have been trying to incorporate some healthier habits into my day. But absence does, in this case, make the heart grow fonder, and I have very much missed connecting with you and also the act of writing itself. So I am very happy to be back, and also I will be sharing a short announcement. I will be finishing up this season with about three or four more episodes through midsummer, and from that point on, I will not be releasing full official seasons per se. Um, But I will be researching and recording multiple uh, limited series about specific topics or themes. For example, today's episode of Songs and Stories will be almost like a prologue for the mini-series I have planned for uh, the end of summer, Jesus and the Women. I will continue to discuss things like mental health, feminism and the Bible, 80s slow jams, and Dunkaroos, which at the time of this recording are miraculously back on shelves because for some reason, Gen Z is in love with 90s throwback food and fashion. I will also begin to record short stories later this year, and I know that LeVar Burton is already doing that, so I'm clearly not worried about ratings, and I am certainly no competition for him. I just like to read and want to share that with you. Some of the short stories will be family-friendly and even seasonal, so you can share them with your kids, too. And now, my loves, on with the show. My mom was not a fashion icon. She lived in jeans and t-shirts and went barefoot as often as she could. She sported a Farrah Fawcett style shag for most of her married life. At least that's what the photo albums tell me. She had her hair cut quite short when she was in her late forties. And I remember not liking the style much, which of course is the height of irony as I am approaching 40. I have a curly pixie bob myself right now. My mom was never able to offer me any fashion advice. She wasn't good with that stuff and I don't know if it was because she was legitimately out of touch with what was popular or if she didn't care, or if it was just because she refused to shop for me anywhere but Kmart. She didn't seem to care for it herself, not in the least, but as a socially awkward, overweight, bespectacled, curly-headed bookworm in a world full of outgoing girls with straight blonde hair, I needed help. That's where my aunt came in. My father's sister, Mary Ann, served me during my high school years as the cool aunt, subtly helping my fashion sense with stylish clothes that, well, came closer to fitting my body. Remember, back then there was no body positivity and no juniors plus sections in the stores. Mary Ann had, and still has, a similar body type to mine, so she was a good source of style advice. And not just for clothing, but for music, too. She tried her hardest to introduce me to indie pop before it was cool, but I clung to Paula Abdul and Wham like no one's business. 
She broke through, though, with the popular, but shall we say unusual, Cyndi Lauper. Now, I know Cyndi Lauper is considered a mainstream 80s pop star today, and her multicolored hair, eccentric clothing, and quirky thrift store meets red carpet vibe hardly turns heads now, but in the early 90s, that was, that was beyond eye-catching. Plus, she wrote or helped to write most of her own songs, and she didn't care about being seen as a sex symbol, unlike contemporaries like Madonna. Cindy Lauper was also openly and passionately supportive of gay rights in an era when the concept was still considered scandalous by the majority of Americans. I still remember the cover art on the cassette tape that I had. On the front of the True Colors album, Lopper is gazing at the viewer via her own reflection in a shallow pool of water on a beach. Her feathered hair dyed a flaming orange and a peaceful smirk on her lips. But we're not talking about that album today. Instead, I want to talk about the song featured in Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion, a cult film deserving of its own episode maybe someday, but you remember the dance scene at the end, right? The slow jam they played was time after time. So let's jump right in. She's So Unusual, Lopper's debut studio album, was released in 1983. The first single released was Girls Just Wanna Have Fun, and Time After Time followed on January 27, 1984. The song was written by Lopper and the multi-talented Rob Hyman, who has also worked with the likes of such diverse talent as Joan Osborne, Matchbox 20, and Ricky Martin. Due in part to its video's heavy rotation on MTV, Time After Time hit number one on the Billboard charts in the summer of 1984, also reaching top 10 lists in over a dozen other countries. As for the video, it's nothing fancy, pretty straightforward. As the song was written as a bittersweet love song, we meet Cindy's character and her lover, played by David Wolfe, her real-life boyfriend at the time. They are living in a cramped trailer, and she is watching an old Marlena Dietrich film called The Garden of Allah. And yes, I had to look up the plot because I'd never heard of it before. Basically, a monk breaks his vow of celibacy to wed a beautiful heiress, and everything ends pretty poorly. We are led to believe that Cindy has watched this movie dozens of times because she mouths along with the lines. The majority of the video is a series of flashbacks showing us the early, joyful spontaneity of their relationship. We then see her boyfriend react negatively when Cindy, who even as a fictional version of herself is a wild bohemian style free spirit, makes a dramatic change by chopping off her long blondish hair and sporting neon orange hair and an undercut. In her disappointment at his response, Cindy takes some time to herself and realizes how much she misses her mother, as well as the fact that she is not living up to her own potential. This prompts a visit to her mom, who tearfully embraces her and nods in the understanding that Cindy has decided to leave town to pursue her dreams. Her boyfriend dutifully follows her to the train station, but confesses he cannot go with her. The final shot of the video is of her tear-streaked face watching him disappear as the train pulls out of the station. So yes, it's basically a I'll never forget you even though I have to leave kind of love song. It's sad, it's sweet, it's simple. 
Unlike some of her other work, there is no real hidden meaning or suggestive subtext. In fact, the song's uncomplicated and near-universal melancholy message was one of the many reasons it consistently shows up on many of the greatest song lists produced by uh, such organizations as Rolling Stone, MTV, and other music giants. I wanted to explore something else within the song, though, besides the romantic love overtones. There is a beautiful promise of faithfulness throughout. Listen to the lyrics of the chorus. If you're lost, you can look and you will find me, time after time. If you fall, I will catch you. I'll be waiting, time after time. This kind of vow certainly doesn't have to be relegated to romantic love. It could be as easily sung by a parent to a child, a sister to a brother, a teacher to a student, or a rabbi to a follower. I feel that this song can so beautifully be applied to Mary Magdalene. It's almost as if the verses are her struggles with her past, and the chorus is an encouraging reminder from Jesus that she's never alone. In fact, it even reflects his actual words, referring to the Spirit of God in John 14. Verse 15, If you love me, obey my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him, but you know him because he lives with you now and later will be in you. So before we move on, I briefly mentioned Mary's past. We need to camp out here for a bit because there is a lot of confusion surrounding the many Marys in the New Testament, and it's very easy to mix them up. For the sake of clarity, if not brevity here, we will be referring to Mary Magdalene by her full name throughout the episode. When we see Mary Magdalene portrayed in art, she is frequently depicted in a red gown or with a red veil or even with red hair. In many Western cultures, red is almost unequivocally re representative of sex, lust, or passion. Why is this color so often assigned to Mary Magdalene? Well, in the year 591, Pope Gregory I hinted at the idea that possibly Mary Magdalene had a sordid past. He remarked during observation of the Easter season that year that, quote, this woman whom Luke calls a sinner and John calls Mary, I think this is the Mary from whom Mark reports that seven demons were cast out, end quote. Even though neither the Pope nor the scriptures actually identify the sins of the sinful woman in Luke 7.36, nor are the seven demons in Mark 16.9 and Luke 8.2 ever assigned any kind of specific identity or name, as Legion is in Mark 5.9, it was not long before the public imagination had assigned the role of this repentant prostitute to Mary Magdalene. And why was this? Some earliest scholars believed that Mary Magdalene was the unnamed woman caught in adultery featured in John 8 and also the woman who anointed Jesus with expensive perfume in Matthew 26. The reason for this assumption is that while the woman or individual women in these powerfully redemptive stories is never identified by name, Mary Magdalene is introduced shortly afterward as the woman freed of seven demons in Luke 8-2. Well, chronologically, she's introduced shortly afterward. 
Further, some early Catholic scholars also identify Mary Magdalene as the same person as Mary of Bethany, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Now, this assumption is somewhat reasonable in that neither Mary Magdalene nor Mary of Bethany are ever described as having husbands, and many of the actions taken by Mary of Bethany, such as attentive worship in Luke 10 and anointing Jesus with expensive perfume in Luke 24, are certainly actions that might be expressions of gratitude and love from a woman out of whom seven demons were cast, or a woman who, despite her adultery, was spared a merciless death by an unusual rabbi. However, I wonder. Mary Magdalene is described as being a supporter of Jesus and his disciples, and the understanding is that her support was financial. She is apparently independently wealthy, or at least well-off, and she's never described explicitly as the daughter, wife, or mother of anyone of note, or anyone at all. She was one of several women to physically